church, I have the privilege of preaching the week that comes before Question and Answer Sunday. Next week is the fifth Sunday in the month. That means that it is Question and Answer Sunday. Uh, get your questions submitted in to Pastor Ryan and he will answer all that he receives, either here in the service or online. If you sent in an email between July 4th and July 11th through the website to Pastor Ryan from the Q&A page, it probably got vaporized. There was a disconnect between our email servers and Pastor Ryan. He was on vacation. They got forwarded, but they got forwarded to oblivion. So don't think that he blew off your question. Send it in again. That was quite a few weeks ago, but there were some folks that maybe sent them in. I don't know. You've known it's coming. So send in your questions and he'll answer them next week. When I get to preach, I usually get the privilege of uh, picking my text. And when I saw few weeks ago, the Hebrew 6 was going to be on the horizon. Uh, maybe I should have known better, but I grabbed that and claimed it for my own and uh, sort of regretted it right away because it's uh, one of the more controversial and high conflict passages in the Bible. People fight over this passage, but after spending a good amount of time with it, I'm very glad that I did take it because not only was I forced to be in it and understand it so that I could have something to say this morning, um, it also finally gave me the opportunity to preach a sermon with the title of Got Milk, finally. So uh, those of you that were here in the 2009-2010 time frame, all my sermons from James were Got something, suffering, temptation, something bad, and this is Got Milk. There you go. We'll be looking at 24 verses this morning. We have made it through chapter 5, and before we get to chapter 7, we've got this interlude right in the middle where the author gives us some pretty serious warnings. There's um, 24 verses that can be summed up in a single sentence, I think. Beware of sluggishness. Be earnest to believe. Be earnest to believe because Jesus is worthy of your trust and your faith, but beware of sluggishness lest you be deceived by sin and disbelief. If you look at 1 through 5 taken as a whole, you can kind of step back and get the big picture Nothing worked before Jesus came. We needed to hear from God. We needed to be reconciled to God. We needed to be saved. But the job wasn't getting done. Not angels, not men, not prophets, not deliverers, not conquerors, not priests. Nothing worked. It wasn't that God was trying this stuff and failing. No, God was taking 1,500 years of history with his people Israel to show them and to show us that we needed something completely different. The problem of sin couldn't be solved from our end. God had to do something from his end. He needed to do something. We needed a different kind of savior. So far, we've seen that Jesus is better than all of God's previous representatives and beats them at their own game. He's a better messenger than angels. He's a better conqueror than Joshua. He's a better deliverer than Moses. But the author isn't wanting to just give information about Jesus. He also wants it to be helpful and edifying to his people. So there are folded in with all this teaching about Jesus. That's much better. I can see them now. Thank you. There's people out there. Greetings. Good morning. There are folded in with all these teachings about Jesus, warnings to avoid and exhortations, pleading instructions given in love to, to do things. Don't drift away. Don't neglect this Messenger, Don't let each other be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Strive to enter the rest of God. Fear unbelief. Hold fast your confession. Draw near 
to God. We've seen those in 2, 3, and 4. Now we're going to be moving into a different section of the book. Chapters 7 through 10 are going to show us that Jesus is not just better than God's representatives, but Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrificial system itself. He is a better sacrifice. He is a better priest. He serves at a better temple. He inaugurates a better covenant. But before he does that, before the author goes there, he could have just gone straight from five to seven, but instead we get chapter six right in the middle. And that's what we're looking at this morning. So open to Hebrews six. And the first thing we discover is that Hebrews chapter six starts in chapter five, verse 11. This is God's word. It's good stuff. But the chapter divisions are from men. And this one is lousy. So while you get to chapter five, verse 11, I will pray for us this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this chance that we have to look at your word, to see what it tells us about you, your son, Jesus, and us, and the way that we can be reconciled to you. I thank you that this word tells us how we can know where we stand with you. I pray that I will be clear in my teaching this morning, as I've learned these weeks of studying, I am insufficient for the task of making clear this text, but I pray that through your spirit, you will use my words and my preparation to illuminate the minds and hearts of your people so that they can see you and see your son more richly and more gloriously this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Chapter 5, verse 11. About this, that was last week, about Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Our author goes 24 verses out of his way to say, you're not ready for what comes next. What comes next is going to be too hard for you. You're not ready for Melchizedek. And why is it hard? Why is it difficult? Not because the subject matter is difficult, but because they have become dull of hearing. The same word dull that we see in verse 11, we will see again at the end in chapter 6, verse 12, where it is translated sluggish, slow, not quick, not diligent, not earnest, not sharp, but dull of hearing. This is the beginning of our warning against sluggishness. These are people that should have been growing. They had the right diet. They had been a Christian for a while, so it seemed they should have been growing. But they're not ready for solid food. So what is the deficiency? What's what's wrong with these people? Three comments we're going to see here before we press ahead. First, note that it's not simply a case of being a new Christian. Of course, you expect new Christians to know nothing and need pure spiritual milk and to start from zero and grow from there. And ultimately grow on to being teachers. The expectation here is clear that eventually people will become teachers at maturity. There is an expectation from the author that they will be able to teach at least themselves, be able to feed themselves from the word of God. And if they have kids, parents, you have kids, you are undoubtedly the primary teacher of your kids. Kara and the folks in Kid City are doing a great job teaching your kids. We could use a few more people back there, but they only have 45 or 60 minutes a week tops. 
parents are the primary teachers for their children, and people need to be growing, Christians need to be growing in maturity to have that capacity. That's why we had the evangelism class this summer, so that we could get some familiarity with that topic. But these folks, they weren't there yet. It wasn't happening. The author thinks they should have been there yet. Second, note that the problem is not with the milk. The milk was good. You feed a baby milk so that the baby will grow. James isn't here. James is going to be my joke. Bethany, you can take notes for James. Feed the baby milk. Don't give the baby cereal until the baby's had enough milk to be ready for cereal. You don't give a baby a burger in the hopes that they will develop from the burger the ability to digest a burger. You give milk, and that leads to growth. Milk is good for growth. Now, in our day, a Christian might fail to thrive because they get into a bad church where the teaching is not good and sour milk is not good for growth. But that was not the case with these people either. So for our answer, we look into 13 and 14. If you are living on milk, you are unskilled in the word of righteousness. Unskilled means untested, untried, unpracticed. And what they are unskilled in is the word of righteousness. They aren't applying what they're hearing to their behavior. There's a disconnect between what they're learning and their moral lives. They're not training their senses to distinguish good from evil. They're not practicing good discernment. They aren't ready for solid food like Melchizedek. The reason for that is not that they have some sort of intellectual deficiency or that there's some sort of educational deficiency, but that there is a moral deficiency in their lives. Some of these folks and some of you might not be ready to hear, might not be able to understand what's coming in chapter 7 through 10 because of a moral deficiency, perhaps, in your life. And that surprised me. I did not expect to see that here this morning in this text. Failure to understand the things of God, the author says, can sometimes be traced to moral failure. You have to apply with diligence what it is that you are hearing. Those are our first four verses. But then we come to the next two verses, which might appear to present a contradiction. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits So if these folks need to go back and drink their milk and refamiliarize themselves with the gospel and apply it, then why would the author say, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ? How are we supposed to reconcile this in chapter 6 with what we saw in chapter 5? And how are we supposed to reconcile it with what Eric said two weeks ago when he was here, that Christians should never go beyond the gospel, that there's nothing in the Christian life outside of the gospel, that we must cling to the simple gospel? Is there a contradiction here? Has, has Eric finally lost it and the college kids made him go crazy? I don't, maybe, but I don't think so. And I've got an answer, and um, you're free to disagree with it. But if you do choose to disagree with it, you need to know why it is you believe what you believe. Like I preached last time, be fully persuaded of what you believe. There's things that we can safely disagree on. This is going to be one of them. I've become fully persuaded from my study this week that these elementary doctrines of Christ that we are supposed to leave are not the gospel itself, but the Old Testament foundation underneath it. And there's good reason to think that from the words that are used. We need to get beyond the Old Testament foundations and embrace 
Christ, who is built on the Old Testament. Please observe that out of the six things that the author lists in verse 1 and 2, none of them are uniquely Christian. They're all from the Old Testament itself, but they are made complete. They reach their fulfillment in Christ. People in the Old Testament repented from dead works, but we can repent permanently and completely because Jesus has made us alive. The Old Testament folks had faith towards God, but our faith is richer and more informed because we can see that Jesus has secured and fulfilled those promises. The Old Testament had lots and lots and lots of instructions about washings and cleansings and baptisms, but we have one, one baptism because Christ died once and was raised once. And our one baptism is our death to sin and raised to new life. In the Old Testament, the laying on of hands was for commissioning and blessing, but we see the coming of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. The Old Testament folks look forward to a resurrection of the dead, but we have seen the resurrection of Jesus. And in the Old Testament, they knew that there was going to be an eternal judgment, but we can anticipate that and judgment because we know what the verdict will be. Not guilty on account of the blood of Jesus. Old Testament is the foundation, but we need to get beyond the Old Testament understanding and get to the gospel of Christ. An illustration may help. We are building a house, and there should be a photo of this at a certain stage in its development. We broke ground in April, and the foundation was poured in May. And we like the foundation. The foundation is good. Brianna wishes that it was pink, but Aaron and I are pretty happy with it because where there used to be an empty field, And then there was a big muddy hole. Now there is concrete sunk down into the ground. There are strong basement walls upon which we can build a house. But when we got this far, we didn't move in because the house wasn't habitable. Had to build a house on the foundation. The Old Testament laid the foundation of repentance, faith, cleansing, and all that. But Christ is the house on top of the foundation. Christ makes the Old Testament habitable, makes it possible for us to live in right relationship with God. But please note, you have to build on the foundation. You can't build off the foundation. You can't go build in the backyard and expect that house to stand. Build your house on the rock, sink your foundation, Old Testament foundation, build on Christ, build that house. There's nothing in the Christian life outside the house, off the foundation There is life only in Christ. Pray of you, we must leave the foundation of the Old Testament and move on to maturity, as the author says, in Christ. To grow in Christ, we see again, you must believe the gospel and apply the gospel. There's no contradiction between chapter 5 and chapter 6 or with what Eric said. Everything flows from this. Build on the foundation, build on the house of Christ. Now, verse 3, this we will do if God permits. If God permits. How could God not permit this? What is it that God could find objectionable about growth to maturity? Under what circumstances would God forbid growth? Verses 4 through 6 answer that question. Let's read verses 4 through 6. It's a single sentence, and let me challenge you as we read this, and I'm going to ask you about this. Identify the subject and the verb of 4 through 6 as we read this. And it's going to be up on the screen. For it is impossible 
in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. The teacher who taught me more than anybody else about the English language was a wonderful lady that we called Frau Berkel. In high school, Aaron and I had many good English teachers. One of our favorites was the speech teacher, Mrs. Easterly, who was deaf. You haven't lived until you've taken speech from a deaf lady. But it was Frau Berkel that taught me more than anything about English. Frau Berkel, she didn't teach lunch, she didn't teach gym, not recess. Frau Berkel taught German. It wasn't until German that I understood how English was supposed to work. And I think that might be why they had us take foreign languages, so we could learn how to speak our own properly. Frau Berkel also taught geometry, where she was famous for Berkel circles that she would draw on the board, which were not circles at all, but looked like something that had escaped from a Petri dish across the hall. Circles. We learned the central importance of the verb. When you've got a tough sentence, 76 words in the English that you want to unscramble, go to the verb. Make it suffer until it answers your questions. So, English speakers, welcome back to high school. Would somebody please care to shout out a suggestion as to what they think the main primary verb in this sentence is? And if you're wrong, we'll laugh at you. You won't be able to hear it on the recording, but take a risk. Would anybody like to shout out a word they think is the verb in this sentence? Say it so that I can hear it. I'm sorry. Restore. Restore is the verb in this sentence. That's correct. There's a lot of, a lot of words there, and restore is the correct answer here in the ESV. Some of your Bibles will say bring back. That's okay, too. Restore means renew, to make new. And notice also that the author says it is impossible to restore. Now, restore to what? Restore them again to repentance, which is a restoring again to repentance, which implies there is some sort of previous repentance of some kind. Now, whom are we restoring, or rather not restoring, to repentance? Got a lot of words to describe this person. They have been enlightened to some degree, which the author describes as having tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. But not only that, they have also then fallen away, which is not just a stray sin, a momentary slip up, a mistake, but a complete forsaking of the things of God, which we call apostasy, completely abandoning previous ways and beliefs. I think some of you may be grasping that this is not just a grammar exercise. The author is talking about something deadly serious here. These people, whoever they are that he's describing, are in a very bad place. They are unable to grow because God won't let them, because they have turned away. We need to know, who are these people? Could it be us? Could it be me? Am I in danger? Am I at risk? Is it really impossible for somebody to repent? That doesn't sound right. Is it possible for a Christian to lose their salvation and be forever forbidden to return? Should I be freaking out here this morning? After studying this, I have concluded that this might apply to 
some of you, and it all turns on who the author is describing, whether these are genuine Christians or not. For 2,000 years, the church has tried to figure out exactly what's meant here. Are these people Christians or are they not Christians? And what does it mean? Just like before, you can disagree with my understanding and interpretation of, of where I've landed here. Know why you believe what you believe. Be fully convinced in your own mind. It's my understanding from reading this that the author is describing in verses 4 through 6 people who were never truly saved. They were in the church. They belonged. They could have been members. They cut the grass. They played on the softball team. They worked in the kids' department. They took communion. They were baptized. But it is possible to do all those things and yet not be truly saved. The idea that a true, saved, regenerate, born-again, whatever label you would ascribe to a true Christian, the idea that they could lose the salvation that they had, in my opinion, from my study, is completely inconsistent with what we see in John and Romans and Ephesians and, among other places, the rest of the book of Hebrews. Unfortunately, I do think it's all too easy for somebody to think that they are a Christian and yet be wrong and be deceived and be mistaken and end up losing what they think they have. It's all too common in the church today, I believe, and it's apparently here too, for people to receive some illumination into the scripture by hearing good teaching and preaching and yet not be saved. To taste the heavenly gift by seeing all the blessings of fellowship and all that there is in Christ and yet not embrace that by faith. To share in the Holy Spirit by seeing him work, feeling his presence in our worship and feeling some conviction of sin and yet not repent and be saved. And to taste the goodness of the word of God and see that, yes, there is life in this book and there is goodness in the age to come and yet not embrace it. To show you, none of this language is ever used in the New Testament to describe believers. And I believe it's used here to describe folks that have been a part of the church and are among us and that we know, but yet might not be saved at all. And to show that I'm not just completely making that up, Consider Matthew 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus denies entrance into heaven to some good church folks who say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And he says those sobering words, I never knew you. To put it all together, it is impossible to restore unto repentance those who have participated in church life, seen everything that there is to see about Christ, and even made some sort of external behavioral modification, modification, but who then turn around and say, never mind, you know what, that's not for me. They start to drift away, and they end up further away than ever before. Now, lest that fill you with fear, I found personally comfort in one last grammatical question. Who is the subject of this sentence? For whom is it impossible? For the person who has apostatized and turned away, they don't want to come back. They've seen all there is to see of Christ and they've participated in church life and they've been there and done that and turned away. They have gone back to their life of sin and rebellion, preferring to be their own boss rather than submit to God. They don't want to come back. That's what it means by crucifying again the Son of God and turning back to their sin after some original form of repentance. They are exposing him to public shame by repudiating everything they used to profess about him. They cannot restore themselves to repentance because they don't want to. 
They can't because they won't. But for their loved ones in the church, those of us who have seen them go and pleaded with them not to and, and we love them, we want them to repent, but can we restore them to repentance? I think we all know you can't repent on somebody else's behalf and you can't make somebody else repent. There are certain tools of behavior modification, positive and negative, but you can't make somebody repent in their heart. You can't change somebody's heart on your own. But for who is it possible to restore them to repentance? Who is it that can give repentance? Who is it that can open the eyes of the blind, make them see the error and sinfulness of their ways and come to Jesus? God can. It is possible for God to give repentance. God forbids growth where there is no life, but God gives life. Their only hope is that God grants them life and brings them to himself. Don't be deceived about their condition. If they look lost, they're probably lost. But God saves lost sinners. You can show them the way back to God. God saves through the work of his servants. And that is wonderfully good news for sinners and those who love them. If I'm correct, then the illustration in verse 7 and 8 better makes sense. It better fit. So let's look at 7 and 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, that's teaching and the blessing of God, drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. One church, but with two kinds of people. They all hear the same preaching and participate in the same church life, drink the same milk, but one group unites that with faith. They hear with understanding, they respond with diligence, they have sharp ears that are not dull, and they apply it, and they grow. And there is a fruit of righteousness that's born in their life, and there is a harvest, and there is a blessing from God. The other group hears the same preaching. They do not respond with sharpness of hearing. They are sluggish. They do not apply. And they end up drifting away, and eventually it is plain that there is no fruit, no life, just weeds and thorns and thistles. Think back to this spring when we finished the series in Ruth and then we had a series on the parables of Jesus. And the first one we looked at was the parable of the soils where the farmer scatters the seed and some of it lands on thorny or stony soil and it has no roots and it springs up but it dies. And some of it lands on thorny ground where it springs up and it's choked out by the cares of the world. Hebrews 6 is that parable in slow motion. Hebrews 6 is what that parable looks like as it is happening. The farmer sows the seed and there's some foliage that comes up, but there's no life. Jesus says next, after he gives that parable in all three gospels, the next thing he says is that he uses parables to distinguish between two groups. One group that will hear with understanding and respond and grow. The other group that hears without hearing, sees without seeing. There's no understanding, there's no perception. And they don't apply it, and they don't grasp it, and their lack of life is revealed because even what they think they understand is taken away from them, and their end is no life. And in the author of Hebrews, their end is to be burned. 
which is, which is pretty serious indeed. They've been exposed to all the goodness of the church. There's some sort of moral compromise. And eventually they turn away. God forbids growth where there is no life. Now, let's turn and consider the complete opposite perspective going on in verse 9, which is about the assurance of salvation and faith that is available to believers. First, notice that the author here has some great encouragement for these same people who received this warning. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. Please notice two key things in verse 10. First, that God is looking at your works. We studied this two years ago when we were in the book of James. Some of you weren't here for that. Uh, we did a bit of James two years ago where we saw that faith without works is dead because works are the fruit and evidence and proof of living faith. And I found it very interesting just in both Hebrews 6 and in James 2, the example that is given of from the Old Testament of somebody who had faith in a difficult circumstance and put that faith into action both, both authors give Abraham offering up Isaac back to God in Genesis 22 as that example. He had faith and put it into action and God could see from his actions that he had faith. And this is the exact opposite of what we saw earlier, where the lack of action was evidence of a lack of faith. But here, God sees and we can see and the author of Hebrews can see evidence of a changed life. We see... Love for God's name demonstrated in service to God's people. Love God and love people. Jesus said that was the sum of the law, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's the law in a nutshell. Why? So you can make yourself right with God? No, so that you can demonstrate that God has already been at work in your life. This is how Christ is the fulfillment of the law, by making it possible for us to do it. And that's also why, second, God is not unjust to overlook our work. We're accustomed to thinking of justice as leading to wrath for us sinners, and that's correct. And we would assume that we are saved by mercy. But here he says justice. God is just when he observes and honors the fruit of life that he has cultivated in our life. God is just when he honors the work of the Spirit, which is yielding the growing likeness of Christ in our life. Verses 11 and 12, the author wants us to seek assurance of that salvation. He does not want us to be in doubt. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. After all that this guy has said to these people, all the stern warnings, now he wants them to have assurance. It sounds contradictory. On the one hand, he sounded pretty doubtful about some of them, telling them that God had forbidden growth because there was no life. Some looked like Christians, but weren't growing and weren't showing it in their lives. And he was telling them, you need to be careful about where you are. On the other hand, he sees folks where there are clear signs of unmistakable spiritual life. And he says, you guys need to see that you are growing to see that God is at work in your life. And I would venture to say that on most days, most of you are where I am on most days, which is 
kind of a mixture of both, where I can see I'm not what I was. And I'm not what I could be. I'm not as bad as I could be. Yet, on the other hand, I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I should be. I'm moving in that direction, I think, but I'm not moving as fast as I would like. Am I just fooling myself? Am I just making progress through willpower, willpower and, and self-delusion? 90% of the time, I look at my life and I can be confident that I can see God at work doing changes in me that I could not do myself. But 10% of the time, that devil brings to my mind ways in which I fail, which ways in which I prefer myself and my sinfulness as opposed to what God would want for me. And, and it's his desire to cause us to doubt our assurance and our salvation. Erin's not quite the optimist that I am, and I have her permission to share that where I would be at 90% of the time, she'd be less. She worries more about the assurance of her salvation, and she worries about that a lot. She and I both do. It's possible that there are some of you that have wondered about that, perhaps, as well. What if? What if you are struggling badly with sin, and some days it's not even a struggle at all. You just give in at the first sign of temptation. Have you fallen away? Are you crucifying again Christ? Are you going to get to the point where God says, you know what? Enough. No more. Do it your way. Go your own way. Do it on your own. I don't know. Maybe. That is something that could happen. This text of warning and my 25 years in the church both testified to me that there are some of you, just by the numbers, some of you do not believe. You, you think you do, but time will tell. And ultimately, you'll discover that the religious efforts that you have made have only been in service of your own ends and advancing your own interests and not God's. A chronic area of sin where there is no victory is a serious matter. But let me say this. If there is an actual struggle going on, that is a good sign. If you are concerned that you might be separated from God, that could be an evidence of fruit in your life. It is those who hear the warning, but hear it with dullness that most need to be worried about not hearing it. So with the rest of our text, what does Hebrews tell us about how we can have assurance of our faith and salvation and not have to wonder if we are indeed genuine? Three things, promises made, promises secured, and promises fulfilled. God made promises, and in verse 17, he wants to show himself faithful. He desires that we be fully persuaded as to his character, his promises, his faithfulness. He wants us to have confidence in him. So he seeks opportunities to prove himself faithful so that we can flee to him for refuge. And we consider that a safe thing to do. So much so that he sent Jesus to secure these promises. Verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, an anchor to keep us from drifting away, an anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, those two verses are an outline of chapters 7 through 10. That is what is coming. We will see, our faith will be strengthened as we see how Jesus secured these promises, if God permits. 
Last, promises being fulfilled in us. If you desire greater assurance of salvation, and you should, and uh, you look first to God's promises made, second to Jesus securing those promises, and third, lastly, to these promises fulfilled in you. Verse 10, again, your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. That element of perseverance. Where should you not look for assurance? Don't look to your good behavior in and of itself. Don't look to a card that you signed, an aisle that you walked, a pine cone that you threw into a fire. Don't even necessarily look to your baptism or to the fact that you take communion. Don't look at the fieriness of your passion, the depth of your conviction, the strength of your faith. All of those are good, but all of those could be just ginned up through internal self-persuasion. For assurance of your salvation, look outside of you. Because salvation comes from outside of you. Salvation is of the Lord. Look to his promises made to you. Look to his promises secured for you. And look to his promises being fulfilled in you. Look at that in your life, which is evidence of his work. Two quotes this morning, and then we're through. First, This is going to take a moment to untangle. I'm quoting Calvin, who was quoting Augustine, who was talking about how he was talking to God. So Augustine was talking to God. He wrote it down. Calvin wrote about it in his institutes, and we have that today. And I'm saying this is true of me, and I'm commending this to your attention. I do not commend the works of my hands... For I fear that when you, this is talking to God, when God, you examine them, you will find more sins than merits. It's coming from Calvin and Augustine. Okay, serious, serious Christians, fathers of the faith. This only I say, this I ask, this I desire. Despise not the works of thy hands. See in me thy work, not mine. If you see mine, you will condemn it. If you see your own, you will crown it. Whatever good works I have are of thee. Let's go into much more modern times. Charles Spurgeon was asked by a lady in his church for some spiritual insight on this topic. She was struggling with the assurance of her salvation and the frustrations of her Christian life and came to him for advice. And he asked her, Madam, do you love Christ perfectly? She said, no, no, of course I don't love Christ perfectly. And if that's the standard, then we've got a problem. Madam, do you love Christ as much as you ought? Well, we ought to love Christ perfectly, so things look even worse now, right? Madam, do you love him at all? And she was able to see in her life that, yes, she did have genuine love for Christ, genuine affections in her soul for the Savior, not just for what he could do for her, not just for the blessings, not just for the fire insurance. She loved him for who he was and what he did. And she could have confidence in that because that isn't something that just came from her. That was the work of God in her life. We're going to have two songs, and then we're going to have a time of communion. During these songs, you can sit and pray and reflect, or you can stand and sing loudly in praise of what God has done in your life. We will have a time of reflection and prayer after these two songs. 
so let me move us into those this time of worship with with prayer dear heavenly father i thank you i thank you that we've been able to spend time in your word this morning i pray that we can see clearly what it is that you would have to say to us as a church and to us as individuals lord i pray for those here who have been filled this morning with with doubt and fear and confusion that you would bring clarity to their understanding and help them understand rightly where they are help them repent and come to you for the first time if they need to know you and lord help them to have assurance if they are already your own help them to see the work that you have done i pray for this church that we would be able to help each other to see the good work that you are doing in each other's lives so that we can be of help to each other and help each other not be hardened by sin but to grow in assurance as we point out and praise you for the work that we can see that you are doing in each other and lord i thank you for those who hear this word this morning and hear it with sharpness and diligence i thank you for the response that you were giving and working in the souls of many pray that if folks have questions, they will find answers to those questions in your word, from Pastor Ryan, Pastor Jeff, from the elders here. Please be with your people and this message as it sits on their hearts at this time of worship. Please be pleased by the worship that we offer you out of gratitude for the work that you have done. It is in your great name that we pray, Lord. Amen.